Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is April 19th, 2016. This is episode 1769 of the Survival Podcast. And today's show was chosen by you, the audience, at least those of you who voted uh, for this month's uh, Tuesday shows. And it is on making and using herbal medicine. So that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. Um, I'm going to talk to you about making and using them. So I want to be clear what I mean by that. I think some people maybe would expect that this show would be you make herbals, medicines, and then you use them. And it is that, but it's not just that. Because, well, there are times when it makes sense to actually procure something that's already pre-made. So it's about making them, understanding them, and then using them regardless of where they've come from. For instance, I'll talk a little bit about essential oils today, and I just don't think it's worth the effort and the mass quantities necessary of herbs for us to be making our own essential oils. I know we can do it, but there's a lot of other things we could do with all that time, energy, and frankly, that quantity of herb that would be more productive. So we're going to be doing kind of a two-parter in the, the concept and the way of the thinking. So just make sure you understand that while we're going to discuss a lot about how to make our own today, that there's there's no reason not to procure something from someone else. And sometimes we procure something so we can make something. For instance, it's not the easiest thing in the world to grow large amounts of turmeric in most of the United States. It can be done, I know, but it's it's you know complicated. But yet you can buy bulk turmeric for next to nothing. So that's one of those things that just makes sense. And we'll talk about a lot of cool stuff today. I'm going to talk about making water and oil-based infusions. And I'm going to tell you how to do the oil infusions in a way where you won't kill yourself with botulism. Because it is the one concern there. Uh, I'm going to talk about decoctions. What is that? What's a syrup? How do we make an herbal syrup, an herbal salve, and a tincture? I'm going to talk about some of the things I just prefer to buy, like I just talked about, and why. Those are pretty much capsules and essential oils, those types of things. To me, are just not worth making ourselves. And I'm going to give you 10 herbs that I love to work with and talk about what they do. Those herbs are going to be plantain, comfrey, lemon balm, garlic, true cinnamon, and I'll explain what the heck that actually means, uh, turmeric, rosemary, ginger, valerian, and dandelion. And then I'm going to give you some final thoughts on how to do this and how to keep it safe. And I'm going to give you my go-to book title for learning how to do this stuff. I've been experimenting with making and using my own herbal medicines since 1998. Now, I'm, when I say that, I mean in earnest. So my history with using herbs for things like scratches and bites and stuff like that is, is very, very uh, much longer than that. Back to being a child where I can't even remember everything. I grew up in a household where the grandmother always had the aloe plant in the window, and that was all used on burns and things like that. My grandfather taught me about plantain when I was six years old. But what I'm talking about is not just, oh, that leaf's good for this. I'm talking about actually sitting down and determining what you're going to make and creating something. And that began in 1998 with a book that I'll give you that has been my foundation in almost everything that I'm going to talk about today, even though it's a relatively simple book with a short list of herbs that you can use. And it starts all out with something as simple as dandelion. I'll tell you what that is in a bit. Before I do that, let's go ahead and take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1769. I have the contest to nourish men. And that's how potatoes came to France, by the way. I have the privileges of a princess, a king, and a president. 
And that tells the story of young Marie Antoinette. And I have the Virginia Assembly is hereby dissolved. I'm going to read that one because we are in a ramp up to the American Revolution. And this is a big part of that occurring. After the imposition of the Townsend Act, Samuel Adams sent out a circular letter, like a circular in the modern day but more official, to all the colonial legislatures asking for support in protesting these illegal and inappropriate acts and asking for King George III to rescind them. When the Secretary of State for the Colonies demanded that the circular letter be revoked and the General Court of Massachusetts deadlocked on the issue, 69 to 69. So the Massachusetts governor, a king's man, dissolved the court and called the British troops to Boston to quell the riots. Now the Virginia House of Burgess, their legislature, have passed several resolutions in support of Massachusetts. This has infuriated the Virginia governor, also a king's man. He dissolves the assembly of the Virginia House of Burgess, whose membership includes... Thomas Jefferson and George Washington. No worries, though. Most of the real politics get done in the tavern anyway. Really. My take by Alex Shrugged. The British troops that Massachusetts Governor Bernard called in to stop the Boston riots were the same ones that took part in the Boston Massacre in 1770. Also, it is not ci often not cited, so I'll point it out now. There was bad blood, and I mean it was really personal between Samuel Adams and Lieutenant Governor Thomas Hutchinson. After Governor Bernard was recalled to England, Hutchinson was left in charge, and shucks. Suddenly, the Boston Massacre just happens, prompted by Samuel Adams' taunts more than likely. And guess who will own a major share in that consignment of tea that ends up in Boston Harbor a few years later? That would be Thomas Hutchinson, and one of the Indians looking suspiciously like Samuel Adams. It wasn't all political or even principled. Some was deeply personal. Samuel Adams did not forget a grudge, and it was tough keeping the lid on him after the Revolution. The same with Thomas Paine. So that was the year 1769. You know, my thoughts are, we are approaching a time of new revolutions all over the world, not just here in America, where people are tiring of being told what they can't do. People are tiring of being taxed. Uh, with representation, doesn't seem like it really means anything, since our representation is bought and paid for. And we are at a point, I believe, in America where we need to start thinking about a new American revolution. But it can't be like the first one. Ours has to be a peaceful rev revolution. And here's why. One, you get into violence, and a lot of this type of thing happens, this bad blood getting settled under the cover of battle. Uh, but the other thing is the tyrants of the world know how to deal with violence. What they don't know how to deal with is ideas creativity, innovation, passive resistance, and organized resistance that has all of those things going for it. Sometimes the more things change, the more they don't stay the same. The system will not change, but we need to. My thoughts by Jack Spearco. With that, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey guys, have you checked out the TSP Gear Shop lately? We offer awesome t-shirts promoting the Second Amendment, the 299 Days Project, the Sentinel Project, and more. We also offer things you just won't find anywhere else, like custom Kydex sheaths for the Mora Number 2 knife. Check it out at tspgear.com. You know, Western Botanicals is my personal first choice for everything herbal, from whole raw herbs to preparations and ointments. In fact, two products I use all the time from Western Botanicals are the Deep Heat Ointment and the Turmeric Combo. Western Botanicals is the no-nonsense, no-hype herbal source you can trust. Learn more at westernbotanicals.com. 
it's kind of interesting that Western Botanicals ended up being one of the sponsors of the day, isn't it, for a show like this? They're definitely a source I'd recommend for a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about and a lot of other things that are maybe a little bit hard to, uh, to produce for yourself. Anyway, I also wanted to remind you guys we do have voting going on for the Tuesday shows next month, and I kind of wanted to give you a little bit of an update as to how things are going right now and how close the voting really is there. Uh, right now, leading the pack, there are 20 items to add to your preps. If you don't have them already, that's got 16.7% of the vote. Watch how razor thin the margins get, though. Setting up a remote property or bug out location, 13.3%. How to determine which business you should start, 12.2%. Finding the right property to make unto a homestead, 119 And training dogs to fit on the homestead, 118 And there's five other choices, so you might want to get over there and vote. While you can, voting will close at the end of the month. Additionally, since this is Tuesday, we have Bob Wells' Plant of the Week. Today's Plant of the Week from Bob Wells is the Isai Cold Hardy Kiwi. It's adaptable from zones 5 to 9. Bears long, sweet fruit. Does not require a pollinator, but will produce larger, more fruit if you plant it with something like a meter. Cold Hardy Kiwi. You can find this plant more at bombwellsnursery.com. Kiwi something I would love to grow here. It just hasn't done well for me. As things tend to progress and, and we get more and more succession and more and more places where I have moist, semi-shady uh, areas, I think I'll give kiwi another shot, but probably not till next year. For those of you, though, in most of the country with nice, deep soils, unlike my rocky uh, my rocky hellhole here, uh, this would be a really great plant to grow. They produce a lot, and I mean a lot of fruit. A mature vine can produce over 100 pounds of fruit. Now, you're a few years away from that happening, but uh, really, really great stuff. Also, I have got a deal for you guys on some uh, fruit. That deal will come out tomorrow. This one's not from Bob. It's from our good buddy Grant Schultz at... Uh, Land, and uh, it's just for you guys, but uh, I'm so busy today, I'll be putting that out tomorrow, so keep an eye out for it. Last time I got a deal from Grant for you guys, it went really, and I mean really, really fast. All right, with that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. Again, I want to talk about making and using herbal medicines today, and I want to start out with why I love herbs in the first place, why I'm so intrigued by them, I'm so so much sold on their usage, and why I try to turn to them first. Uh, the first reason is more than anything else, I have experienced what herbs can do. And that experience has given me a great deal of confidence that most of the situations that I end up in where I have an injury or I have been uh, have an abrasion or I just don't feel good or I just can't sleep well because I'm excited about something or whatever it is, because I do tend to get a bit excited can be handled with herbs. Very gentle, very safe herbs. So I know they work because I've experienced them work. Uh, the next reason is because it just makes sense. That if we were put on this planet, either by intelligent design, pure evolution, creation, whatever you believe got us here, that the things that we would need to thrive as a species would be here with us. And I, I think the only reason that we don't have more herbs available everywhere is because we've done so much damage to the ecosystem. Can you imagine what this nation was like before it was a nation? Before we got here? At a time when they said that a squirrel could go from the Atlantic Ocean to the Mississippi River and never come down from a tree? But yet it wasn't all like that. There were just clumps of trees. There was some connection everywhere. But there were huge glades being maintained by the native peoples. How 
far do you think you would have had to walk to find something that would heal you or help you or do something beneficial for you like aid you in digestion or keep your memory sharp? Probably not very far, no matter where you would have been. But I do also want to talk about what herbs can and can't do and be realistic. I am not a believer in hype. Um, I recently had an experience that I've relayed over the air quite a few times now, and uh, even though I'm going to talk about making salves today, I used a, a product called Dr. Christopher's Tissue and, and Joint uh, Herbal Salve that uses plantain and comfrey and some other things. And I seriously injured my knee to the point where it wasn't just a painful thing to try to put weight on it, where putting weight on it would cause me to be in so much pain that I wouldn't do it. It literally was incapable, even if I was willing to accept the pain, incapable of supporting my weight. And the injury seemed to be to the LCL and the MCL, not the ACL. And I got home, and I immediately started applying this comfrey salve to that joint. I ordered this product while I was still in California. It got here the day I got here, and the turnaround was dramatic. Absolutely, positively dramatic. I went from being on crutches one day to being with a, a cane for two days, so much so that for the first time in my life, I used one of those little electric carts at a store uh, just because I was moving around so slowly. Um, to kind of just walking with a limp for a couple of weeks to being able to walk completely normal now. Now, I'm not going to say it's completely healed. I still have to be careful and mindful of what I do. I wouldn't do strenuous work with my knee, like any kind of real agility movements or anything like that. And I do still feel certain pains and tightness on stairs. So I'm being careful and continuing my therapy and rehabilitating myself. Why do I believe Comfrey was able to do that? Because I believe that I either mildly tore or simply strained those ligaments. If I had actually had a severe tear, I would need surgery. Okay? So I think that you have injuries, for instance, that can be addressed with things like Comfrey, and then you have injuries that are severe enough that even if they don't look like an open gaping wound or something like that, you need all the advanced things that we can do with modern medicine. And I, I think that the problem that I have with modern medicine, and there's a lot of people think that I just, um, you know, I, I bash science and I bash medicine, and nothing could be further from the truth. I think the problem I have is the dependence of the modern person on modern medicine to the point of trusting to the level of being really stupid, that you're that trusting of something just because a guy's wearing a white coat and they advertise it on TV. The insistence of the pharmaceutical companies on inventing illnesses so that they can create new drugs to treat them with just so they have something to sell. These are things I have problems with. The wholesale uh, concept that we should vaccinate for everything on planet Earth constantly and continuously. These things I have a problem with. And it's where I think what we need to be is intelligent beings that can educate ourselves about our bodies and our health and make determinations for ourselves is when we need to go to higher levels of care. And that is how it was not that long ago. And I'm not talking about, you know, back in the 1800s. I'm talking about 25 years ago. We didn't run to the doctor for every little thing. Before health insurance ruined health care, people took care of themselves. And that's the truth. Before we became, before we made the medical industry and doctors and pharmaceutical companies into false idols to be worshipped, adored, and believed no matter what, we, we, we decided it was worth taking care of ourselves a hell of a lot more as an individual. But there are times to use, you know, 
those other things because there's amazing things. And that's what I think is so sad that the medical industry has become so greedy, has become so obsessed with profit, has become so willing to, 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 to stoop to things that are morally reprehensible that we sometimes don't see the really great things that come out of that industry. And if they just focused on those instead, we might all be better off. But we'll leave that there. So I want to start out with some herbal preparations and how we make them. So I also want to refer you back that uh, quite a while ago I did a series called Herbal Actions. And I did 40 herbal actions. And I'm certainly not going to rehash those today. It was four shows over an hour each where I went through 10 herbal actions, what they do in herbs that have those actions. If you really want to take yourself forward in the world of herbs and herbology, it would make a lot of sense to go back and listen to those shows like a mini clinic. And the truth is those shows literally could have been put together with some slides and sold as a class. And if I sold that for $199, you'd get every penny of it. It's completely free, but if you want to see a picture, you got to look one up for yourself. So I would really recommend those. And let me explain why I would recommend those. Herbs have a language onto themselves that's very similar to medical languages. In fact, many of the herbal actions are also pharmaceutical actions. Not all of them, but many of them. And there'll be pharmaceutical drugs that are, you know, an expectorant or something like that. When you know the herbal actions and you know what that they mean, and that means you know what those herbs do. And when you have an issue, you can think, oh, what I need for this is fill in the blank. And then you can go find herbs that have those properties. And you can think about the preparations I'm about to give you and think which preparation would be best suited to this issue, right? Then you have a power, especially with the Internet today, to be able to do your own research and very quickly come up with something that you can try and see if it works for you. Because I'm not going to say it's going to work for you. I don't know. But you can also do so very safely if you listen to what I'm teaching you today, where you don't have to be afraid that you're going to mess something up. You need to search. Do, does, does this particular thing have side effects and interactions? What do I need to watch for? What are considered dosages that are too high? But most of the stuff I'm going to give you today is so safe, you'd have to really be stupid and try hard to hurt yourself with it. But what you might do is make something that doesn't actually give you the effect you're looking for. It might actually not work. And that's okay, because that's how we learn. And that's why I think that herbs are best suited to common problems. Chronic common problems, too. Achy backs, sore joints, things like that. Things that, you know, it's fine to go ahead and still use whatever you know conventional therapy you're using for them. But do these herbs help? Or can I go without that conventional therapy for a couple weeks and see what this will do for me? And we become very educated as to our own bodies. And that's what I think is really different about herbal remedies is that they're not about somebody else making something and just saying, here, when you have this problem, take this. There can be some use like that. I mean, if you have sore, achy body at the end of the day from work and you take turmeric in capsule form, it absolutely, 99% of the time, will provide you some relief and some benefit. It may work better for other people, but it's a pretty simple you know, matching the problem to the remedy. But it's still what I call replacement therapy. It's fine for its use, but we need to think about, well, why are you sore? Well, I work really hard, sure. But can we tonify you in some way with different herbs that actually not only will the turmeric then aid what aches you have, but you'll have less 
And then we need to look at, well, what benefit does that turmeric have beyond just your aches and pains? Since it's anti-inflammatory, it has the capacity to reduce problems and illnesses and long-term serious illnesses if it's used regularly anyway. And we learn about this for ourselves, where with medications it doesn't really work that way ever. Okay? So let's start out with what I consider to be the simplest way to get herb from raw herb to a, a way that we might use it differently than just as a raw herb. And those are infusions. And infusions are really, really simple. And we can do an infusion with water or oil. There's other ways to do infusions. I'm going to keep this simple today and give you the basic stuff that will allow you to use any whole herb in a way that will be usable for your own needs. So when we make an herbal infusion... We'll start with water. Um, there's two types. There's a cold infusion and a hot infusion. It doesn't take a lot to you know kind of figure out what the difference is. One uses hot water, one uses cold water. What hot infusions do is they dry out, draw out the vitamins, the enzymes, and the aromatic volatile oils. You know, some herbs that would work good in this would be things like chamomile and basil and ginger, peppermint, skullcap, nettles. All right. Basic method, we're going to take one to three tablespoons of a dried herb into a strainer, heat a cup of water until it just comes to a boil, and then we'll put that water into a cup and put our strainer in that cup. And we're going to or put the strainer in the cup, and then we're going to pour the hot water over the herbs to cover, and we want to keep the essential oils in. And we'll steep that for 15 minutes to an hour, depending on what we're trying to do there. So we're making a tea. And I'm going to put a link today in the show notes to my favorite little infuser for making like one cup infusions of herbs. It really is a tea infuser. It's a little very, very tiny uh, hold strainer that sits perfectly in your average cup or your mason jars, your wide mouth mason jars anyway. And it has a little cover that sits on top of it. And that does, as steam comes up and those, those essential oils and volatile oils and aromatics are coming up and trying to leave, they condense on that lid and fall back down into your infusion. Those are some of the most important parts of it. Okay, So I'll have a link for that in today's show notes for you. But it's made by a company called For Life. And it is the For Life Brew-in-Mug Extra Fine Tea Infuser with Lid. You can use anything you want for this. You, you can take a, a small uh, colander and that will sit inside a mug, and you can use that and put a plate over it if you want to. I am a huge believer when it comes to buying things to buy something that you buy once and never have to buy again. Unless you lose the lid um, or want more than one, that's what this is. And you will end up using it not just for herbal infusions when you're making them for a medicine, but for your teas. I like to make teas also with French presses. I'm kind of trialing different ones right now because I'm not happy with anything I've bought yet. I'm really not. I'm, I think I'm going to have to break down and spend the money on something that I know I should have bought in the first place. This one's not expensive. These are like 15 bucks with free shipping. So it's something you really might want to take a look at. I'll have a link on Amazon today where you can get that. And you can also use these for the next method, which is a, a, a cold infusion. And cold infusions are really good for herbs with delicate essential oils, things that can get kind of slimy, uh, like lemon balms, uh, marshmallow 
um, things like that. The way we make a cold infusion, we fill a quart jar with cold water, bundle an ounce of herbs in a cheesecloth, slightly moisten the bundled herbs, and submerge the bundle just below the water in the jar. We make a big tea, uh, tea bag, basically, and we allow that to infuse overnight. Well, my view is the easiest thing that you can actually do is don't worry about making the tea bag. So that's, that's like the way that people say to do it. But check this out. So what you do is you just put your herbs into your jar, you fill it completely to the top, and you put the lid on your jar. You give it a good shake, you let that sit overnight. And then the next day, you take that little infuser I just told you about, you set it in, a, in a, another jar, and you pour it through it. It will strain everything out, and you'll have a nice clear infusion for cold infusion. So that's how I'm going to recommend that you do your you know infusions, uh, your cold infusions. And I do a lot more hot infusions than cold infusions. I'm not really big on the cold infusion method. Um, I don't use a lot of the things that generally work better that way, and I've never had issues doing lemon balm infusions with the hot water method. So, I mean, I drink so much lemon balm tea, I probably don't even need to ever worry about lemon balm again because uh, all the benefits you get from it, I am uh, probably getting now. But those are your two methods of infusions. So the next thing I want to look at is doing oil infusions. And oil infusions are pretty much the same thing. We take the herbs, we put it in the oil, we bring those oil either we bring that oil up to a warm temperature. So I, I generally try to bring oils to the point where if I did it, I just kind of watch it, and if I got it any hotter, it would start to cook. But it doesn't start to cook. I'm kind of poaching the herb, if that makes sense. And I'm sorry that I can't give you an exact temperature, but I'm kind of a folk herbalist. I kind of do the folk methods, which means I don't really get too fussy about things. And how much you use is dependent on what you're trying to do. But I generally would use, if I'm using a jar, let's say I'm using a pint jar, then I'll fill that jar about one quarter to one third with a dry herb and I'll add my oil, either cold or, or warm. If I'm doing it in a, a heat, I actually prefer to go ahead and put it into a pot, uh, but I'll measure the quantity that way. So I'll take the jar that it's going to go into and I'll put about a quarter to a third of dried herb in there and then I'll drop that into the pot And then I'll measure out about a three-quarter of that jar into there, and I'll heat that and heat infuse it. The reality, though, is in most instances it's not necessary to use a hot infusion. I pretty much use hot infusions of herbs when I'm making salves, we'll talk about in a bit, with comfrey and plantain. Most other herbal infusions, if I'm going to do an oil, I tend to just do the cold infusion method. And that is, you put the stuff in the jar, you put the, the, the you know, whatever herb you're going to use in the jar, you fill it up with oil, you put the lid on it, and you let it sit. And how long is depending on what you're trying to accomplish. But for most of your cold infusions, you're looking at about four weeks. And when you're done, you just strain the herbs out of the oil. So it's a long process with a cold infusion. It's relatively quick with a warm infusion. I generally do uh, the comfrey and plantain oil. Uh, by heating that oil up, getting it to the temperature I talked about, put, I use a little pot, put a lid on it, wrap a towel around it, and let it sit. And I might heat it a second time, but generally that's it. That's all that I do. Um, and then 
what you're generally told to do, of course, is to strain it through a cloth or whatever. But you know that little tea infuser? It's so fine-meshed that if you set it in a jar, you just pour your herbal oil through there, and it will strain everything out for you. So this is where I have to tell you about one risk that doesn't really have anything to do with the herbs in themselves, and that is botulism. So botulism grows in oxygen-free environments. That's what we need to understand about it. It's one of the most common things on the planet. It's literally everywhere. And people are aware of the risk with canning and certain things that are low acid need to be pressure canned versus water bath canned. And like the number one way people actually get botulism in the modern day is from uh, potatoes that are stored improperly for too long and then consumed. Uh, without being heated to high enough temperatures. You know, you, a lot of times you make potatoes, you mash potatoes, you boil it, 212 degrees won't kill uh, botulism. It will boil off the toxin if it's done long enough, though. So there's a little bit of mythology there. But, but botulism is very common, and it's not the spore itself. It's just the spore develops, it creates a toxin, and it's one of the most toxic substances on the planet. So we don't want that. So oil, if you can imagine, is a oxygen-free environment. You don't have a lot of oxygen, you know, in oil. So there's potential with oils if we introduce botulism spores into the oil to create botulism. But botulism needs something else to propagate, and that's water. So the only real risk with infused oils for botulism is if we use fresh herbs. Now, if we're making an infused oil that we're going to use to cook with tomorrow, it's not really a concern, okay? Or especially if we're going to infuse an oil and we're going to cook with it right away. It's not a huge concern. So if we're doing something for a salad dressing or something like that, don't worry about using fresh herbs. It's okay. But if we're actually making something that's going to be stored long term, the simple solution is use dried herbs. Well dehydrated dried herbs. So if you want to make a garlic oil and you wanted to keep it around as a culinary thing and you wanted to eliminate this risk, just use dehydrated garlic in your garlic oil. The way commercial manufacturers avoid this is they acidify fresh herbs before infusing them. This is complicated and not something you want to try to do. Don't risk this one, okay? Just don't. Um, next, let's talk about decoctions. So what makes something a decoction versus an infusion. Well, decoctions are basically a tea as well, a hot tea. The difference is that a decoction is simmered. So instead of just pouring hot water over something, we actually put it into a pot and we simmer it. So a basic decoction would be we'd place about three tablespoons of dried herb into a small a pan, cover the herbs with about a quart of water, And we're going to slowly heat the water to simmer and cover. And what I mean by that is we're not going to put the, the cold water and herbs on the stove and turn it up to high and get it to boil as fast as possible. We're going to go with a very low temperature, and we're going to slowly bring it up to steaming, 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 maybe add a little more heat, take it away, and just take our time getting to where we start to get a boil. We don't want a rolling boil. We want to simmer like we're simmering chili. And when we get it to there, we're going to, Back that heat down just enough to maintain a simmer, which might be the lowest setting on like a gas stove. If you're lucky enough to have a gas stove like I do, you might have to fiddle with it more if you have electricity, but because you're going to cover it. 
Because again, what's happening? All those volatile oils are trying to get away. This is why we're going to go to a very, very low heat setting because when you cover it, it's going to be much easier to maintain a boil. So by doing that, as we're boiling it, all that steam's coming up with all those oils. It's dripping back down into the pan. And we're going to simmer that for 20 to 45 minutes, and we're going to let it cool. This is important. This is what people don't do. So you've just kept this lid on this thing for 20 to 45 minutes, okay? Lowest heat setting you can set it to to keep that going. You've simmered it. You've extracted all those wonderful aromatic oils, all those essential oils, all this beautiful stuff. It hasn't escaped with the steam. And you're finished. And what do you do? You open the lid and the steam goes. Let it cool and condense Back into the pan. It should be cool enough, and use your brain, so don't just grab it to see, right? That you could pick the pan up in your hands in contact with it, and it wouldn't cause you any discomfort. Until it's that cool, don't open it. That's all you have to do. And then strain the herbs and reserve the tea in a jar. That's it. You, what you can do, if you wanted a full jar, you can get some hot water and pour it back through the strainer to top it up. But if you get it too hot and you do that, what have you done? You've, you've kind of, again, introduced all that heat into that jar and you could boil them off. If you do this kind of quickly and go ahead and put a lid on the jar, not really a problem. You don't need to bring that temperature, that water up to boiling. You take 180-ish degree water, pour it through the strainer. It's going to cool as it goes in, put the lid on it, you're good to go. So that's a decoction. These are for things that don't, really release enough of the good stuff, so to speak, when you use them than a, a typical tea. So a lot of times, like really hard roots, dried berries, barks, things like that, chaga, when you use chaga fungus, usually I think decoction is the best way to do that. So now we've, we've made our extraction, right? Uh, we've made our infusion, basically. So what is a way that we can then preserve that long term and put it into another form? And that's to go ahead and let's transform any of these either infusions or decoctions into a syrup. And we can use those to treat things like sore throats and flu, upset stomach. We can even make syrups that then can later be diluted back down and be, you know, make a refreshing drink or a tea that's already sweetened. How we do this? Um, we, we make our infusion and, you know, if we're going to do, uh, roots and barks and berries, 20 minutes of decocting, uh, if we're going to do leafy herbs, about 10 minutes of infusion, we strain the herbs and measure the liquid. So we just, we figure out, I got a quart of liquid, a pint of liquid, whatever. And then all we really have to do the easiest way, add an equal amount of honey. That's it. If you have a cup of, of uh, tea, you mix in an equal amount of local raw honey. Now, you want to do this while it's still hot so the honey will dissolve. You're making a very sweet syrup here, right? And it, it's going to take quite a bit to get those together. But, we, again, we don't want to be at a point where we've got screaming, steaming hot, or we want to move pretty quickly. What, what I like to do when I make syrups is just to bring the temperature down a little bit. Give it some time so it's not raging hot. 
and go ahead and do it. And if you're at about 140 to 150 degrees and you do kind of get to where you can just look at the pan, kind of feel it, touch it so you don't burn yourself and go, yeah, that's going to work. That's going to be about right. And that way we don't lose all that wonderful stuff. This is a great way to make elderberry syrup. Now, the thing about it is if you're making a lot of syrups, the honey thing can get expensive. You can also make this with simple syrups. A simple syrup is simply white sugar and water mixed in equal amounts. But what we can do is we're just making a simple syrup with the decoction. So a cup of decoction to a cup of sugar. We'll make a simple syrup with that infusion in it. So every bartender in the world knows how to make simple syrup. Equal amounts of water and sugar. You know, so that's it's also good bee feed. So now, you can start to see how these things start to come together. So now you know how to do a decoction or an infusion. Well, one really great herb that might benefit your bees would be something like chamomile. So when you make your bee feed, what you do is instead of just making your simple syrup, you make an infusion of chamomile. And then you remove the herb so you don't get a sticky mess. Now you add your sugar to make your bee syrup, and now you've got a chamomile-infused bee feed, which is a heck of a lot better than just straight sugar and water. So you, you start to realize these things all stack together, and these are all techniques that we're learning so that we can start expanding our, what we do with these. It doesn't just have to be for ourselves. Elderberry syrup, though, is one of the most wonderful tonics and stuff used for colds and flus and stuff like that, and now you know how to do that. It's, it is really this simple. It's not hard. So next, let's talk about making an herbal salve. So to make an herbal salve is super simple. We make an infused oil. I like to use either olive oil or avocado oil. Those are kind of my two favorites. And then we heat that oil, and we heat that oil enough to melt beeswax into it. And we melt beeswax into it until it becomes the consistency that we're looking for in our salve. Ta-da! That's it. There's other ways to make salve. To me, this is the simplest, easiest method. Um, when I make comfrey plantain salve, it's exactly how I do it. I use fresh comfrey and fresh plantain because I'm not going to eat it. I could care less if there's botulism in it. I, I really don't. It's not for food. It's not for consumption. Trust, trust me, you wouldn't like it. Another thing that's nice to add into that is peppermint because it kind of counteracts the smell but I also will make it with dried comfrey and dried plantain and dried peppermint, either way. Um, and that's really a great salve. And when you're making it to get more of the therapeutic components of the comfrey, if you have it available, root is good to use. And we do a hot oil infusion with our comfrey, plantain, peppermint. And then we take and strain that off. And then we, again, we heat it. Not so much worried about aromatics getting away and escaping here because it's a different use, a different application of the herb. And I'm going to then add beeswax until it, it's the consistency I want. How much? I don't know. It depends on how much you have. But what I generally do, I have beeswax in like big cubes. And when that oil looks hot enough to start melting wax, I just take a knife and I cut off some of it. I figure that's about a tablespoon. I throw that in there and stir it up and look at it and go. And remember, it's going to be thinner while it's hot than when it cools. But here's the beauty. So you take a couple chunks of beeswax, you melt it in there, you go, that looks like it's going to be about right. Don't get it out of the pot yet. Leave it in the pot. Let it cool. Throw the pot in the refrigerator if you want to to cool it faster. Once it solidifies, take your fingers, touch it, feel it, see if it's what you're looking for. If it's too oily, if it's too thin, throw it back on the, on the stove, 
warm it up till it melts again, drop some more beeswax in it. If you think that's a little bit too hard, throw it back on the stove, heat it up, add a little bit more oil to it. Then put it into your containers. And I usually use, I use little Tupperware containers that hold a couple ounces. They're cheap. They're in every store. That way I can make five or six of these at the same time, and I store those in the refrigerator because they can kind of stinketh if you get my drift, if you don't because of the comfrey. But you can do this with any herb that you want to make a salve with. And there's a lot of other great herbs that go well as salves. So, again, this is not something consumable, so we have less concern about a toxin or something like that in there that would harm us if we consumed it. Um, I'm not going to talk about comfrey and its risks much today at all. Certainly not now because it's in my list of herbs that we're going to cover as we wrap up today. But that's how we make a salve. And again, it is that simple. So then we move on to tinctures. The reason we would make a tincture, let's kind of start out with why we would make a tincture rather than how we'd make a tincture. We want a very high concentrated source of the herb. This is a, one of the higher medicinal things. It's generally for internal use. So if we wanted to make a dandelion tincture, we're going to have an awful lot of dandelions, constituents, and components in a very small area. So we're making a, a stronger medicine, so to speak, here. And there are things that you can say are tinctures, like using high-acid vinegar, Uh, but is it infused? Is it a tincture? Whatever. Um, it's technically, um, it's an acetum, right? But we'll just let that go. I'm talking about alcohol here. And generally, we're going to use to make our tinctures something like 80 to 100 proof vodka is probably the best thing that we can use. And that's going to be... 40 to, you know, 50% uh, alcohol. And that's fine. That That's great for most dried herbs and fresh herbs that aren't really, really juicy type herbs. And it's really good to extract all of the water-soluble properties. So we can make it basically a concentrated version of a water infusion when we make a tincture with that type of alcohol. If we move up, to alcohol levels of like 70%, then we're going to get all of the volatile aromatic properties out of that herb. And it's also good for high moisture herbs like lemon balm, like berries and aromatic roots. And it will draw out more of the plant juices and oils for us. The best way to get into that 60% range is what we do is we mix 190 proof grain alcohol, Everclear, equally with 80-proof vodka, and we're going to get rated right in that 70% range that way. It's the simplest, easiest way to do it. There's not a lot of stuff out there that's you know 70% alcohol. That's 140-proof. I mean, Bacardi 151 would be your closest, and I don't really want to use a, a rum for this. I want to use a neutral spirit. You also can use grain alcohol. I'm not even going to talk about that today. I, I, I think it's seldom necessary and you're talking about something that really burns when you try to take it, because generally these are for internal uses. So how do we do this? Um, really, really simple process. varies a little bit based on what you're doing, um, but if you're using fresh herbs like leaves and flowers, chop them or grind them to release the juice in the surface area. Fill a jar two-thirds to three-quarters with herbs. Obviously, the more you use, the stronger your tincture. Pour your alcohol to the very, very top of the jar. This is important. You want to completely cover them. And 
seal up your jar, to use dried materials, use finely cut material, fill the jar one half to three quarters. Now you're going to get a much stronger tincture using dried material than fresh material because more of it in less space, just like when you're cooking. So you might want to go to the lighter side, depending on what you're trying to do. Pour alcohol to the top, cover it, put the lid on it. If you're using things like root, bark, and berry that's fresh, chop or grind them, fill it one-third to halfway, pour alcohol to the top, and put the lid on a jar. And it's really pretty much the same process, um, depending on what you're doing. Understand, though, when you're doing things that are dried, they're going to expand. They're going to pull water out of the alcohol into them. And they're also possibly going to reduce the volume. So what you want to do is the next day check, and if it looks like there's any airspace at the top of the jar, open the jar and fill it back up. And you should probably only ever have to do that one time. And what you're going to do then is you want to store this in a cool, dark place, like a back of a cabinet, but not somewhere where you're going to think about it. Uh, forget to forget to think about it, right? You want to pay attention to what's going on here. Because several times a week you want to take it, shake it, and make sure that we haven't lost any, like the, maybe it's not quite airtight, you're losing some alcohol to evaporation, evaporates very quickly. Um, top it off whenever you need to. Make sure there's no mold or bacteria. That should never happen, but only if you get a big air gap in there, that can occur. And let that extract for six to eight weeks. Again, we're making a very concentrated dose here. And then, this is where I actually agree with what everybody else does, and I don't use my little strainer, okay? Remember what I said, that the herbs, when they're dry, will take a lot of the water and alcohol into them. And they will. They'll be kind of like this reconstituted herb full of booze, right? So this is where you want to use something like a cheesecloth, uh, or I use flower sack towels mainly for all of the things people use cheesecloth for. And so you put that into, you know, like a strainer for a jar and strain your liquid through it and then squeeze it. Squeeze every bit of goodness you can get out of it and then put that into a bottle and label it. What it is, what its percentage of alcohol was, the day you made it, etc. This is a true herbal medicine here is what you've made. And we can do this from something as simple as a dandelion, like using dandelion root would be a very useful tincture. And so that's how we make a tincture. Again, none of this is actually hard. It's all kind of like cooking. And again, I'm going to tell you that when it comes to essential oils and capsules, I prefer to just buy them. I don't try to make either one of those. And that doesn't mean we might not use something like essential oils in something we produce. So remember I said that in comfrey salve, since it can kind of have not the best odor, if we add something like peppermint to it, it kind of detracts from it because peppermint smells good, fills up all the all you know the nose well, so that we don't have this bad smelling comfrey smell. So what we could do with that is we just make our comfrey plantain salve or straight comfrey salve, and then a few drops of peppermint oil. You add that at the end when you've gotten your consistency right with your beeswax. Because if we add it while it's screaming hot, what are we going to do? We're going to boil it off. It's very, very volatile. So the way we would do that is when we're jarring up our salve, we pour it when it's still liquid. It still pours easily. And then a drop of peppermint oil and just stir it in with like a toothpick. 
and then cap it and let it cool till it's the consistency you want. That's all it'll take is one tiny drop. And we could probably just use peppermint-infused oil, like a commercial peppermint-infused oil that's really, really infused. Or we could use a commercial peppermint extract. Or we could make our own peppermint extract with alcohol and then use that because there's a lot of concentrated smell and dose in there. So see, it all starts to stack together. Now I want to give you my favorite book for learning about this stuff. I think it's extremely readable. It's very non-complicated. It gives a very basic list of herbs that are all really, really easy and safe to work with. Uh, it takes you through making a tincture with dandelion. Of all the books I've ever had on herbal medicines, it's the one I will never get rid of, even though I, I know it very well, uh, and I've used it a bunch of times, and it's called The Herbal Medicine Maker's Handbook. And uh, the, the author's name is James Green. It was released in 2000, but I think it was actually a real re-release re because um, I have an older copy, I'm pretty sure, of, of, of that same book. But it is absolutely like the, the most approachable book, and it doesn't get complicated. It keeps things very, very simple, and I recommend it highly. It is a book that I personally think makes sense in paperback, It is now available on Kindle, though. So I might buy the Kindle version just to have it. Um, but the Kindle version is one, of those, is one of those weird things where it actually costs more than the paperback uh, version. It's like $17.99 for the Kindle version, $14.27 for the paperback on Amazon. But there'll be a link to that in today's show notes. So let's talk about 10 of my favorite herbs. And it's not a top 10 list. This is just 10 herbs I thought I would like to tell you about today. There's, so when somebody's like, I can't believe you didn't put X on it. There's just too many herbs to put them all on. But plantain is one of the herbs out there with one of the longest historical uses. We're talking about Plantago Major is probably the best plantain to use. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to get that to grow on my property yet. I have a narrow-leaf plantain called tonic plantain that I need to do more research on to know if it really has any of the benefits that, that Plantago Major has. Um, but this is a weed in most people's world. Uh, it's all over the place. Great big green leaves. You can use it as a pot herb. It's actually quite tasty to eat, chopped up and mixed in with other greens into a salad. It is really a food, so it's it's something that you don't have to really worry about hurting yourself with. Um, the seeds are actually really high in protein, and people that have the patience to to seed a lot of it will often use that as a protein boost in things like manic which is basically bread you make on a stick over a fire. But it takes a lot of work to get that many plantain seeds as far as I'm concerned. But it is one of the best things for wounds, scratches, uh, insect bites, things like that. Um, I've used it when I've been stung by a wasp without doing any kind of prep, whatever, get a few plantain leaves, mash them up in your fingers, make a, a poultice basically. Then what you're doing is a quick on-the-cuff poultice, apply it to where the sting or the bite is, Uh, and somehow hold it there. So I was stung by a wasp in the back of my leg when I was at Ben Falk's. There was plantain right next to where the wasp stung me, grabbed it, balled it up, put it on the sting, and pulled my sock up to hold it on. And 15 minutes later, there was no evidence to bite other than the hole. This was a pretty big wasp in a pretty big hole. So it can be that simple. I've been tore up by fire ants here, mashed up some plantain. I know the narrow leaf does work for that, and rubbed it all over the fire ant bites, and they never get nasty like they do when you don't do anything. Comfrey works good for that as well, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, it also has been uh, studied clinically in Bulgaria for use on chronic bronchitis, and it's actually worked pretty well for that uh, because it is a demeculant. 
which is a lot like pectin and glycerin, which are used in cough medicines. So it has a lot going for it. It's one I really recommend that you uh, continue to uh, to learn more about. And I can only give you so much on these herbs without making this show like a mile long. I want to give you a good long list today. Next herb that I have for you today is comfrey. Now, comfrey has had a, a bad rap that I don't believe it deserves as being it's going to destroy your liver and whatever. Since I'm talking about it being used topically today, I don't even care. I'm not even going to go into the battle about it. I'll just say this. The study that's usually cited about how it causes liver damage, uh, to, to get the amount of leaf uh, into your body necessary to uh, measure up to what was given to these rats, you'd have to eat 66,000 leaves in six weeks. Okay? So we'll just let it go at that. I won't go into a rant. But my first and highest use of comfrey is as a wound healer. It's a dermal regenerator. And my favorite way to use it for that purpose is as a salve, which I've told you how to make today in combination with plantain. Uh, it also is very good for tissue injuries, like my knee that I talked about already, bruises, minor fractures, or even severe fractures that have been set and professionally splinted or cast um, at the point that that's removed and you still have tenderness around that injury, it can be used. Minor fractures that don't require a cast or only splinted or whatever, it's great for. It, one of its folk names is bone set. The only real problem with comfrey as a healing agent is any kind of deep wound, especially a deep wound that could become infected, you should not use comfrey on it because it will literally heal the top of the wound over with skin and it can trap in infections. So that's like the one real caution there. But scrapes, scratches, things like that. Again, nothing I say is medical advice. Consult with your physician. You got it? Okay, I'm not a doctor. But the government says you shouldn't use it on any open wound. I say caca on that, okay? I say crap. I say bullshit. This is a plant with 10,000 years of use by humans. Uh, now, in high concentrations, the alkaloids in comfrey can damage the liver. So when you're doing extractions with large amounts of it and things like that, using it for a very long time without a break in between could potentially allow absorption through the skin, especially broken skin. So use it in moderation and think about what you're doing. Consult a licensed herbalist uh, if, you, uh, if, you, if you feel in any way that you might have the need to do that. But I can tell you that I've had scrapes, scratches, things like that, a little bit of comfrey salve on it, and a day later it, it, it's literally healed over. Now, it's not going to heal a serious wound like that, nor should it. Uh, but Lawrence D. Wells, who wrote the book on comfrey, literally the book on comfrey, trialed it in convalescent homes on old people that were going to die, right? Like, it doesn't matter. They're going to die. But they had serious bed sores. And when people get really, really old and they get stationary, they get bed sores, they get wounds, it won't heal. The skin gets very, very thin. And he used comfrey stabs and poultices on people where they had done everything medical science knew to do. And this is in the early 70s. So not the dark ages, but not as advanced as they are today. But they still have this problem today. And in most instances, not only did it improve the wounds, it actually healed them over to where it was difficult to see where they were. And the only time that didn't happen was when the person was so far gone that they died before they had a chance to heal. Okay. It is an amazing herb, and the fact that the medical industry has villainized it is one of the reasons I hate the medical industry. And, and the fact that doctors just accept this without doing any independent investigation 
makes me sick as well. So comfrey, I've done whole shows on it, so we'll, we'll cut it there. Lemon balm is another great herb, and it's one that I grow as much as I can of. Uh, it is a, a wonderful herb. I use it in just plain old teas all the time. My, my go-to tea right now, I'll, I'll give you the recipe, guys, okay? So this is just a tea for drinking every day. It is three parts each, by volume, not weight, of lemon balm, lemongrass, and green tea, and then five parts peppermint and five parts chamomile. I love that tea. I drink multiple cups of that tea every day. Uh, and the lemon balm is an incredible tonic that's in that tea, along with all those other great herbs. Lemon balm is one of these herbs that, that has actions that are almost magical, be, meaning that it gives you what you need when you need it. So lemon balm actually calms the mind and encourages restful sleep. So it's a great tea at night. But when you're actually supposed to be awake, it actually boosts awareness and sharpens memory and problem solving. Now, how can one thing calm you and make you more alert at the same time? It's almost like your body knows what to take from it for what you need when you need it. Like your body has an innate intelligence. Um, it's also really great for skin applications uh, to make skin look younger, to reduce wrinkling, things like that. And it can be used in oils that way. It's all, it's used in cosmetics. So the cosmetic industry uses an awful lot of lemon balm. Uh, it's a powerful antioxidant. So we all should be getting as much antioxidants into our body as possible. So oxidation, not to go into like a, a deep nutritional or medical lesson here, is a process where basically free radicals oxidize cells. Okay? And, and it's like your cells being rusted is a way to think about it. And what antioxidants do is they bind up with these free radicals so that those free radicals then can't attach themselves and do oxidation damage to your cells because now they're bound up with another compound. Because what's happening is that free radicals out there like a little, like a little magnet. It needs to bond with something. So all an antioxidant is something that those free radicals will bond with instead of you. Got it? Really, really simple. It supports the liver. Um, it is, and, and of course the liver is a key to your overall health and I'm not saying it, pre you know, prevents liver cancer or anything like that, but it, it is the case that the healthier your liver, the less likely you probably are to acquire liver cancer again. I don't believe that cancer prevention is a thing and that if you, in, in this way, that if you do these 20 things, you'll never get any cancer. I don't, I don't buy that. But I do think we can reduce cancer risk. And I think lemon balm is a good one for reducing the risk of cancer in pancreas and liver. I have no medical proof behind that. I'm not making any kind of a medical claim here. I'm telling you what I believe based on my understanding of the herb. It also helps support blood sugar and keep your blood sugar level. Uh, and it tastes good and it smells good. It is actually a natural insect repellent because it has citronella in it. So when I'm being harassed by bugs, if there's some lemon balm around, I just grab a handful of it and I rub it on my hands and my face and my neck. And unlike the citronella plant, which is overwhelming with it, you actually smell kind of like lemons. So it's a good culinary herb as well. But anyway, lemon balm, something I definitely recommend that you, you know, make part of your herbal education. Garlic. Um, garlic is the next one. And if you asked most herbalists, if you could only have one herb, they would choose garlic. Garlic does so many amazing things. And I'm not saying it's the cure for cancer or something again, but 
If you forced yourself to only have one to work with, the more you know about different herbs, the more you would probably choose garlic. So one of the big things garlic has, and it's why it has that smell, is a, a compound known as allicin. You pronounce it like a girl's name, but it's spelled A-L-L-I-C-I-N. And this has tremendous health benefits in of itself. Um, very uh, effective medicinal properties. It is an incredible digestive aid. And if we're digesting things properly, we're getting good nutrient absorption from all of our food. So it's, it's really great for that. Uh, it's actually really nutritious and it's loaded with element, um, uh, nutrients and vitamins. Uh, chiefly among them manganese, B12, or B6, I'm sorry. Yeah, B6. Uh, vitamin C, selenium, and a, a reasonable amount of fiber. So it, it's a good overall food, and it has all of these components in it. Uh, it has been shown through clinical studies to help the body combat uh, sicknesses, including the common cold. I think everybody probably had a grandmother that made them you know, really garlicky chicken soup when they had a cold. You might even pretend you had a cold so you could get some of it. Um, it has been clinically tested and shown Uh, that garlic can reduce blood pressure. It also has been shown to, prove, uh, to be able to improve cholesterol levels. And it has, it's just like I said about lemon balm, a, a huge antioxidant load in it as well. And uh, it, it's just an amazing plant. And it's something we should all be cooking with all the time. Here's something that we should know about garlic, though. Garlic has a lot of really high-value components to it that when we cook it, we cook those off. So making things like infused garlic oils is one way to use garlic in our food without losing those. So again, we don't want to risk botulism, so instead of using fresh garlic to make our garlic oil, we use dehydrated garlic. We can either dehydrate our own garlic uh, in something like an Excalibur, or we can purchase a dehydrated garlic product, we'll put that into our oils, Or we make a garlic oil with fresh garlic, but we don't give it time to worry about botulism, right? We make it and we use it right away, either one. Uh, another way that we can use garlic is in our food is to chop some raw garlic and then add that to our food while it's still warm so it kind of poaches, but it doesn't really cook at high temperatures. That doesn't mean not to cook with garlic. It means that when you do, some of the health benefits are lost. Raw garlic is really a great way to go. And, you know, you could do worse than using garlic capsules, which are basically garlic powder in a, in a gelatin capsule, uh, to get garlic into your system. So it is really one of the great overall uh, components. Any of your, let's say, decoctions, your infusions, etc., that you're using to treat any kind of cold symptoms, it really belongs in there. It, it's just a great plant overall and something you really... Again, should learn more about. The next one is true cinnamon. And true cinnamon is Celion cinnamon, also called sweet cinnamon. And I actually am not a fan at all of what is generally sold as cinnamon, which is actually what it was called cassia or Chinese cinnamon. It's cheap, commonly available. Almost everything you find on a store shelf that says cinnamon is cassia. It has a high level of a substance called coramin, which can be harmful to the liver and kidneys when consumed daily or regularly. 
Uh, it's not a concern for occasional use, but if you're making tea every day with cinnamon in it, you, you should not be using cassia. It's reddish, dark brown when you look at it. You can look at the two and tell them apart. It has uneven, thick bark that forms only a few layers when it's rolled up. Again, it's probably what you're getting in the uh, um, the store. It's really tough. It's hard to grind into a pow uh, powder at home on your own. Uh, it's difficult to, to cut into smaller pieces if it's in a stick form. It is really pungent. It has a real full-bodied taste. Um, it's really good for braising meats, for instance, but it's it's not what I consider to be something that you want to use medicinally at all. It doesn't have hardly any of the actual benefits of true cinnamon or Celion cinnamon. Um, it does have a little bit of the coramin in it, but it's very, very, very small amounts, and it's recommended for daily use, especially for correcting blood sugar levels. It's really good about that. It's tan-colored. It's thin and paper-like. forms a bunch of layers when it's rolled up. You can take a stick of it and kind of bend it before it breaks. It almost tears like paper. Um, it's really delicate in flavor. It's sweet. has little subtle notes of clove. Uh, it's an excellent favorite flavor profile for, like, desserts. Uh, I make my uh, my apple pie moonshine using true cinnamon. I, I use true cinnamon for everything. Um, it is is really uh, a high-value medicinal. And it, I think it's important to understand the differences between the two of them and not turn around and use... You know, uh, cassia as a medicinal because it just has no place in my personal opinion as a medicinal. And again, I'm a, a kind of like a folk herbalist, right? Folk, folk medicine type herbalist, self-taught mostly. Um, so it's not a professional opinion, but it is my opinion after doing a lot of research. Celion is also just full of antioxidants, which again, I think we should be getting that as much as we can. It has antimicrobial uh, components to it, antiparasitic components to it. It helps digestion. Again, it, it, it's been shown to reduce blood pressure. It controls glucose. If you are in a weight loss uh, regime, uh, I really recommend that you look at using uh, Celion Cinnamon in, in that effort. Um With paleo, you may not need it as much, and you might want to go easy because you can actually really drop blood pressure with, with large amounts of it. But it would be something to try small amounts of and to increase slowly until you get what you're looking for out of it. Um, if you're sourcing an herbal remedy and you're specifically buying something that is marketed for uh, blood glucose control and you read that label and it's not selling on cinnamon, Don't buy it. I actually consider it a risk to your health because it can be damaging to your liver if used for a long time if it's cassia. And if it's not, if it's not Celion, it's cassia. So there's another one. I really like to use, it's also again called sweet cinnamon, true cinnamon, uh, in teas is, is really my favorite way to use. Next up is turmeric. Turmeric root is a, is a hell of an anti-inflammatory. Um, It's not as anti-inflammatory as something like uh, your NASADs, like, uh, you know, uh, aspirin's actually a NASAD, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, but uh, like, um, what am I, like Motrin, right? You know, uh, ibuprofen uh, or acetaminophen like Tylenol. You're, you're not going to pop two turmeric capsules and get as quick a relief from pain with turmeric. But turmeric's much safer. It's a much more long-term thing. It's, it's something that, that aids the body over time. You're not going to hurt yourself with it unless you get into ridiculous, heroic, stupid amounts of it. 
Um, it's used in a lot of Indian cuisine. It's what gives stuff that you know, certain curries that really bright yellow color. It's also full of antioxidants, um, and it is something that you should make part of your diet one way or another. The primary way that I actually use turmeric is in capsule form from Western Botanicals. So I was asked before how I consume turmeric. I make a lot of curries, but the problem with that for me is my wife doesn't like curries. Um, so if I make a curry, then I have to eat it myself. Next up is a, a very much a culinary herb, rosemary. Um, rosemary can be used for a lot of different things. It smells wonderful, so it's another one of those herbs that with all the extra things that it already does, uh, you would you might consider using it in a certain salve or an oil that wasn't quite so pleasing to smell without it, um, as long as it wasn't doing something that was counter to what you were trying to accomplish. But I'll tell you a use for rosemary that people just don't know, and it's really important for those of us who like to grill a lot. So one of the concerns with grilling meat over charcoal grills especially, but all high-temperature grilling, is the creation of something called HCAs in the meat. And these are seen as a possible carcinogen, increasing the risk in cancer. And if you like to burn meat on the grill a lot like I do, it's something we should be concerned about. There's a lot of things that we can do to reduce that in our meats. One is to not ruin steaks by cooking them well done. Because the longer they're on the grill and the more they're cooked, the more of these things can be formed. Another thing is to marinate meat ahead of time. Uh, and I've really gotten to where I love salted steaks. And anything that tenderizes the meat tends to allow the cooking to be more gentle, even at higher temperatures, and reduce that. But there's something we can do that's so easy and tasty that we should always do it when we're cooking meat on the grill. And that is to include in whatever rub, marinade, seasoning, rosemary powder. Yep, that's... That's one incredible way to reduce HCAs in meat. And that's because rosemary, once again, is high in antioxidants. So this is actually not one of those things that's like a myth or something like that. This was actually tested uh, and was published in a study in the Journal of Food Science uh, in March of 2010. Okay, And it was found that, that meats cooked at temperatures of 375 to 400 degrees where the, they added rosemary to both sides of the meat before cooking, that there was a reduction in some cases of almost 90% of HCAs, with that being the only variable. And of course, the more you use, the more you'll reduce it. Now, you can overuse rosemary on meat to where it tastes like a pine cone. Don't do that. But that's just one example of, of something that, you know how I said like you would think that if we were put here by our creation, however you see that, that everything we would need to survive and thrive would be there, and that it would intrinsically kind of make sense to us to do these things, well, here you go. You rub meat with rosemary before you cook it, and it tastes better, and it makes the meat less risky to you from a health standpoint. Now, I also believe that a lot of the, the ties of meat to being part of uh, cancer uh, and, and, and heart risk are from eating meats that are raised in CAFO operations where the animals are stuffed with corn and they have unhealthy fats. And if the animals actually ate the grass and herbs that they're supposed to eat, they would be healthier. But you can take the best grass-fed meat in the world and you can grill it over high temperatures on the grill and you can create HCAs. Okay. Now, those HCAs combined with all the other things might be worse for us in a, a factory meat situation with rancid fats, basically. But... It's certainly the case that we can still create those. But with this one thing, we can almost eliminate it. 
And if we use other good practices with our grilling, we can really reduce it to, to inconsequential levels. That's why I don't worry about grilling my food at all. By the way, it's not just grilling of meats that can do this. High temperature cooking, like on a, a skillet, a frying pan, cast iron skillets can also cause this. So rosemary is part of your your cooking uh, ingredients for all of your meat rubs for that are being cooked at high temperatures. Good practice. Some other benefits. It's a very, again, rich source of antioxidants and anti-inflammatories. So it's something we can use in a lot of the different types of preparations I talked about today. It absolutely helps improve digestion. You could do far worse. If you have trouble with digestion and you make a small cup of like a rosemary peppermint tea right before you eat uh, and drink that before you eat and maybe then finish with another small cup of it, and I'm saying, you know, it doesn't have to be like an eight-ounce cup, like small, like four ounces of it, um, before and after you eat, you, you probably just about reduce most indigestion problems to, to nothing. It, it's really that simple. Uh, it has been uh, tested uh, and shown to improve... Uh, cognitive performance, and provide some levels of neurological protection for your brain, which I think we should all be concerned with with how much Alzheimer's is out there. Uh, it, it's In fact, Kyoto University researchers in Japan revealed that rosemary may significantly help prevent brain aging. All right, so again, this is not like some claim you know, by someone trying to sell you herbs. I don't sell herbs. This is from Kyoto University in Japan. Um, and it also found that uh, rosemary extract uh, from the on uh, a research published in Oncology Reports uh, had uh, anti-proliferative effects on human leukemia and breast carcinoma cells. So it actually has some anti-cancer properties. Again, this is from medical-level research. You wonder why they don't talk more about that, though. Um, it does have some side effects if you are on anticoagulant drugs, ACE inhibitors, diuretics, or lithium. Uh, you should be careful with how much rosemary you include in your diet or use medicinally. Those are all things. So it's one of those things that's really, really safe until you put stuff in your you know, body like ACE inhibitors or things like warfarin or take you know ridiculous amounts of aspirin that thin the blood um, or lithium. Right? I mean, so is it really the rosemary that is the problem there? I don't know, but it is. Some people are on these things. So if you have high blood pressure medications, again, which is ACE inhibitors, that's something to think about uh, there and something you should definitely talk to your doctor about. The next one is ginger. Uh, ginger, much like cinnamon, has a capacity to reduce blood pressure. You might wonder when you look at certain diets that include a lot of capsaicin from hot peppers, Ginger, uh, garlic, cinnamon, like Eastern diets, you, you see that these people have very low uh, incidences of high blood pressure, even though you know we're led to believe it's because they eat rice and nothing but rice and a little bit of fish. No, they're like many of these cultures eat tremendous amounts of meat, including pork. It's like if you look in, in Asia, like it's the most eaten meat there is, uh, is pork, uh, fatty pork, by the way. And yet they overall have, just like the Mediterranean diet seems to have an effect in the positive this way for other reasons. And, and it's believed to be one of the reasons you could be there. Um, lowering blood sugar, anti-inflammatory effects. It's been used to deal with indigestion as well, uh, digestive aid. Uh, ladies, it's been 
shown that it can help reduce menstrual pain for some people. And I'm not saying it cures that, right? I'm saying that for some people it seems to work. It seems that it also may help with lowering high levels of LDL, which is the bad cholesterol. And it has been shown to have some anti-carcinogenic properties, so potentially reducing the risk of cancers and also, again, improving brain function and believed to have some potential to help protect against onset of Alzheimer's. Right? This is a route that you can buy in any supermarket. I mean... Again, I, I don't want to oversell this. Um, it is not like, okay, eat ginger and you won't get Alzheimer's or cancer. It's anything we can do to reduce our risk, and it's an incredibly good culinary herb. It's something we should all be learning about. It's also a good tea. Um, I use it to make mead. So it's just a great overall herb to, to have. And it's something we can grow at home, in pots, it will freeze and die if we leave it outside in cold weather, but uh, we can just buy good quality ginger. I recommend organic ginger because then you know it's not been treated with any kind of thing that's going to inhibit its ability to grow. Cut the nodules off of it and use the rest of it for ourselves and plant it and grow g fresh ginger at home. So it's, it's really a great herb that we can grow even at home. If you have a greenhouse, you're set. The next one is valerian, and there are different types of valerian. So I'm talking about valerian officinalis, which is true valerian. Um, primarily, it's used as a tranquilizer and sedative, and it, it's very effective for that. My favorite way to use valerian is in conjunction uh, with passion flower and peppermint and chamomile as a tea for the evening. Peppermint's another one of those herbs, like its cousin lemon balm, that If you take it during the day, it kind of makes you mentally alert, but if you drink a tea at night, it kind of helps you go to sleep. And one or two cups of valerian tea, and dude, I'm out. I don't care how excited I am, how much I'm thinking about something, if I'm under some kind of stress that has me thinking about things I shouldn't, I take valerian tea, and I go to sleep, and I just knock out. Um, but not in like, you know, kind of like a, you know, took five volume type thing and passed out uh, type of thing. It's a natural... Uh, easy uh, slide into sleep. There's a couple things you need to know about valerian for this use. Number one, while tea is a great way to do it, you may want to try a different methodology with valerian for yourself because I personally think it kind of tastes like gym socks when you make tea out of it. It's Yes, gym socks. Uh, do I know what gym socks really taste like? No, but that's kind of the the kind of thing I get from it, like a gym sock thing, right? If you're tasting wines and you look for different flavors and stuff, you come up with what might that taste like, right? So gym sock taste. So that's probably why I like the chamomile and the peppermint in it. And I will use honey with that because that also kind of offsets it a bit. My wife will drink a cup or two of this and doesn't really feel like it does anything to aid her in sleep at all. But I think there's a reason And this is part of valerian meeting the body's needs and what the body's telling it it needs. So if you drink a couple cups of valerian right before you go to bed, and within 30 minutes of, of drinking that tea, you hit the bed, you turn the light out, you put your head on the pillow, you close your eyes, you reduce your breathing, which is a great sleep aid anyways, consciously reduce your breathing, the slow, deep breathing. That tells the body it's time to go to sleep. It just, boom. If you wait more than 30 minutes, there's kind of like this window of opportunity. You might be tranquil and calm, but it really doesn't do anything to make you sleep any better. That's just my personal experience, but I've read accounts from other people that do seem to back that up. 
So it's something if you want to use it as a sleep aid, wait, wait till you're going to go to bed. Okay. Um, it also does have a tranquilizing effect for people that have a problem where they're being nervous or upset or concerned. And it is practically, I mean, there's like, I, I've never heard of anybody with a valerian addiction. I think there's a lot of people on really harmful drugs that proper use of valerian uh, would give them enough of a therapeutic effect to not need those drugs. This is this is a big problem I have, again, with medical science. So uh, a doctor will prescribe a, a medication for sleep aid that's maybe a narcotic uh, or some other serious medication, and that person will take that medication and knock out, right? I mean, they, you take a couple of them, you're going to sleep. And it's just how it is. It's just major sedative. And then they'll, if they even were willing to look at something like valerian, they would say, well, it's not as effective. Well, it doesn't need to be as effective. We don't need to be putting ourselves completely unconscious with a medication if the problem was we're having trouble getting to sleep. And the patient could take some level of responsibility. You can't just pop these whenever you want and go nod off, right? So... Develop a routine for going to sleep if you're having trouble, get to sleep. Uh, and make sure you take this right before you go to sleep. And once you do, shut the freaking light off, hit the pillow, and do a little bit of deep breathing and clear your mind. And let the effect aid you in getting to sleep. Because a human being is supposed to be able to go to sleep. The reason people have trouble sleeping is generally because they're stressed. So there's a stressor that's creating uh, things like cortisol moving through the body, and therefore the body thinks there's danger, and therefore I can't go to sleep because something's going to get me. So it's like what helps you stay awake when there's a, a, a giant cat just outside of your camp, and it's going to come in and kill you if you fall asleep. So you, the stress keeps you awake for long enough to get through the danger. But we've created these artificial environments in society today where that stress continues when it's not supposed to be there, and it's very, very unhealthy. So it makes a lot more sense for us to do what we can to correct the underlying problem, what's causing the stress, and deal with that problem naturally and safely and gently than take a narcotic or a, 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 a really, really strong sedative. It's not necessary. Then we become dependent on that sedative to be able to do a natural function like sleep. Right? This is... This is true uh, ex example of where I believe we are literally hurting people with medications they do not need simply because they work. And they make the patient shut up and go home and go to sleep, and they make the pharmaceutical companies lots of money. And if you are in the business of manufacturing a product for sale, do you want to sell more of it or less of it? The only way to sell more of a medication is to convince people they need it. That's, that's the facts, guys. The last one I saved to the end because it does so many things and it's something people just don't even think of. They just think it's a weed. Or even if you, you, you think it's useful, you don't realize all of the things that it can do. It's standalone. Uh, number one, it's a digestive aid. It acts as a laxative and promotes digestion, stimulates appetite, balances natural and beneficial bacteria in the intestines. It can increase the release of stomach acid and bile and aid digestion, especially of fats. It's great for the kidneys. Uh, it's a diuretic and helps the kidneys clear out waste, salt, and excess water by increasing urine production. The, the, uh, it was actually called pislet by the, uh, the, the French, which literally means wet the bed. Uh, it, in here, it also inhibits microbial growth in the urinary system. 
uh, and it also helps replace some of the potassium lost in the process of urination. Uh, so those of you that have high blood pressure, one of the things you want to do is increase your potassium. One way to increase it is to reduce its loss. Uh, as far as the liver, it's been shown to improve liver function by removing toxins and establishing hydration and electrolyte balance. It also increases the release of bile again. So anything that makes your liver work less hard is probably a good idea. I mean, you can live without quite a few things, but you can't live without a liver, and you only get one of them. And if you think about that, you need your kidneys, but you get two. You need your lungs, but you get two. You need your liver, but you get one. Antioxidants. It's every single part of the, the, the dandelion has antioxidants in it. Um, dandelions seem to actually show promise in, in, in quite a few studies in cancer reduction of risk. Uh, and again, it's a big part of that is the antioxidants and phytonutrients that are in uh, dandelion. It, there's also been some studies recently that show that it helps regulate blood sugar and insulin levels, so that may be able to help people with diabetes. Uh, as a diuretic, it increases urination, which lowers blood pressure, so another way that it might help people with blood pressure. It's also been shown in studies to lower and control cholesterol levels, while improving cholesterol rate, uh, levels by raising HDL. So your HDL is your good cholesterol. Uh, it increases bile production and reduces inflammation. Therefore, it may be useful with gallbladder and gallbladder issues. Uh, it also is an anti-inflammatory overall. It contains uh, a lot of essential fatty acids, antioxidants, phytonutrients. These all reduce inflammation throughout the body, can relieve pain and swelling, and it also seems to be an immune booster. Um, a dandelion. I mean, do you realize that dandelion is a really great plant to make tinctures with, a uh, really safe plant to make tinctures with. Uh, you can use the root and the leaves and the flowers in the making of tinctures, either individually or all together. It's also a good culinary herb. The blossoms actually make an incredible wine. Um, I mean, did you realize that something like a dandelion could do all of that? And we're only scratching the surface today. And again, I want to finish up with saying I'm not making any health claims. I'm not saying any of this stuff cures anything. I'm not saying that it it prevents disease because I can't because that would mean I'm recommending it as a drug because that's how screwed up our laws are. What I'm saying is there are studies that have shown that it does, even though I can't say that it does. Do you, do you understand that? I mean, that's how ridiculous this is. And people that doubt me, all you need to do is just like put in dandelion study. Medical study. And you, you'll find study after study after study that does show positive results from all of these herbs. So kind of my final thoughts today, people worry about safety when you get into things like this. What I'll say to you is this is all as safe as you make it. Like one of the biggest risks we talk about today was botulism and oils. We use dehydrated herbs and then don't worry about it. Okay, I mean, that's, that's, that's that simple. And can you blow up your liver with comfrey? I would imagine if you were to take like a massive amount of comfrey and, and make a really, really concentrated tincture of it and then drink like a quart of that a day, you could probably blow your liver up really, really fast because it would be just loaded with PSAs, right? But why would you do something like that? And, and all of these things, because you don't know ever what you might have an adverse reaction to with or something like that. We should be using small, gentle amounts and determining for ourselves, where do we get to with the therapeutic effect we're looking for? Or is it just doesn't work for us? Or do we start to have any kind of negative effect and then stop doing that? Do you know how many people a year are, are killed in this country by the proper 
use of prescription medications. In other words, a drug was prescribed, we used this prescribed, person ended up dead. If we actually include overdoses on prescription medication for pain and anxiety medications, people that do have problems with them, because I think that's fair to do, because the drug is part of the problem, right? In 2009, for the first time ever in the United States, more people were killed by drugs than motor vehicle accidents. 37,485 people died from drugs, a rate fueled by overdoses on prescription pain anxiety medicines versus 36,284 from accidents. And drug fatalities more than doubled among teens and young adults between 2000 and 2008. Um, it's unbelievable. Almost 20,000 of those drug deaths were from prescription medications. 20,000. The prescription medications. This is on Dr. McCullough's website that I'm reading from. Do, do, do you really understand that's, that's where we're at? Um, it, 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 it's hard to even get your head around the fact that this many people die from drugs that are prescribed to them by doctors, and then the medical industry will tell you something like Comfrey is dangerous. And they'll, they'll cite two or three people in, in known history that actually did manage to blow up their liver by being stupid as examples. And they'll ignore people who took drugs, in some cases OD'd, but in some cases took them exactly as prescribed and had reactions to them that, that killed them. And, and it, well, it's safe because the guy with the white coat said it's safe. It, it, it's preposterous. That doesn't mean that you can't do stupid things with herbal medications. And it doesn't mean that just because something's natural, it's safe. Okay, I mean, um, destroying angel mushroom is natural and deadly. Foxglove is natural. It does have medicinal uses as digitalis, but it's also a deadly poison that can kill you. You eat a handful of foxglove, you'll die. So it's as safe as you want to make it, but why not make it safe? Why not learn to use these things? Why not take basic common sense steps like using natural and dried herbs every day in your cooking just for the for their flavor and their health benefits and learning how to transform them into medicines. We can do this. It's not that hard. So again, I want to really recommend to you, if you want to start this walk, get the Herbal Medicine Maker's Handbook by James Green. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. Again, the paperback's like 15 bucks. The Kindle's like 18 bucks. Um, and I'm you know, I haven't seen the Kindle edition yet. I probably should have bought it and looked at it just for you guys. But uh, you know, I have an old copy that's on the bookshelf. I can see it right from here, and uh, it's kind of the kind of book with tables and charts and stuff. And I, I generally prefer in book form, the you know, hard book form, where most other books I actually prefer in a, a Kindle form. So anyway, that kind of wraps it up for today. I hope you really enjoyed today's show. I want to remind you, you can help support the show when you shop on Amazon, whether you want any of the stuff we talked about today or not. The next time. You are going to Amazon. Instead of typing out Amazon.com, type in the shorter domain address, T-S-P-A-Z, T-S-P-A-Z.com, and just by shopping on Amazon, you'll help support the Survival Podcast. You won't have to spend a penny more, uh, and you'll actually type in a shorter domain. If you want to do business with members of the TSP community, consider checking out the TSP uh, business directory, where you can find folks to do business with. 
Uh, today's sponsored listing is actually me. The, T the Regenerative Ag Agriculture Facebook group is a supporter of the TSP Business Directory and a great place to discuss methods and techniques with like-minded producers. Please consider joining our community and contributing to the knowledge base there. You can find us right now, believe it or not, you can just go to regen.ag, R-E-G-E-N.ag, and it will redirect to the Facebook page, or there'll be a link in today's show notes. And really, you should come join us on that group if you are involved in anything, especially if you like today's show. I mean, herbs have to come from the earth, right? Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You can help support this show. Go to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on Members to learn more. Well, you'll get great discounts. Like Western Botanicals, you get a $50 uh, premium membership for one year there. Pays for your first year of MSB by itself. You get 25% off all the herbs and herbal products that Western Botanicals sells. And I know they were a sponsor today, but if you're looking for an herb and you can't find it, man, Western Botanicals, wildcrafted or organically grown, if they ain't got it and it's an herb, it's probably because it's illegal. And if you need help, real people that really care will talk to you and help you make these decisions, pick up the phone and give them a call. Great, great sponsor and a great source of herbs. Uh, with that, let's hear our song of the day. The song is from the group Alabama. Alabama really came up in the 70s and 80s uh, and changed country music. It was uh, the band that made me love country music as a kid. This song has an interesting take for me. It's called 40 Hour Week. It was released in 1985, and it makes me realize how far we've come. We used to value trade labor in this country. If you listen to this song, you know, position after position after position mentioned in this song were people that would never darken the door of a college, keep this country moving around. And, and we, we, you know, we, we kind of, in 1980s is when we really started this whole crap about every child should go to college. And at the same time, we lost respect for all of these really meaningful jobs. While we're sitting here screaming, we need to bring jobs back to America and keep illegal aliens out from stealing our jobs. Well, maybe the reason we don't have this, this economy that we want is because people don't even value the work anymore. And maybe we should. On another note, this song means a lot. It's a lot different for me today than it used to be. Why? I haven't worked a 40-hour week. Hardly ever. I've almost always worked more than 40 hours. But this is about, you know, kind of having that job. I don't really want a job. I love what I do in my own businesses. And I think that we can have those two worlds mesh together. If you're going to be an entrepreneur, somebody has to have a job. And the other thing is a lot of people become entrepreneurs just like I did by working their way through jobs. I learned a lot working for a living. You know, I think I guess I still work for a living now, but you know what I mean, working for somebody else for a living. So if you're the kind of person that busts your ass every day, this song's for you. If you're the kind of person that busts your ass every day and one day wants to get out of the job and into the world of running your own business, this song's still motivational, still for you. But really, I put it on today, we talk about a history segment every day. 1985, guys, was not that long ago. I remember when a 1980 car wasn't that old, and if you were in high school, getting one was a big deal. 1985, we thought this way. I talked about a revolution in this country, and a lot of that is how we think. Thinking this way is a step in the right direction. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live, this better, live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. We work hard every day, not for fame or fortune do they strive. 
But the fruits of their labor are worth more than their pay. And it's time a few of them were recognized. Hello, Detroit Auto Worker. Let me thank you for your time. You work a 40 hour week for a living. Just to send it on down the line. Hello, Pittsburgh Steel Mill Worker. Let me thank you for your time. You work a 40 hour week for a living. Just to send it on down the line. This is for the one who swings the hammer, driving home the nail. For the one behind the counter, ringing up the sale. For the one who fights the fire, the one who brings the mail. For everyone who works behind the scenes. In the factories and the fields, in the city streets and the quiet country towns. Working together like spokes inside a wheel, they keep this country turning around. Hello, Kansas, sweet Bill Farmer, let me thank you for your time. You work a 40 hour week for a living. Send it on down the line. Hello, West Virginia coal miner. Let me thank you for your time. You work a 40 hour week for a living. Just to send it on down the line. This is for the one who drives the big rig up and down the road. For the one out in the warehouse bringing in the load. For the way. Mechanic, the policeman on patrol, for everyone who works behind the scenes. With a spirit you can't replace, with no machine. Hello, America. Let me thank you. Uh...